right, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you guys, uh, uh, worshiping with you, and then also now looking in God's uh, word with you uh, this morning. My name is Ross. If I have not met you yet, I get to serve here as one of the pastors, elders, and um, yeah, I'm excited to continue our series through the Gospel of John. Uh, if you have a copy of Scripture on you this morning, turn to John. We're going to actually be in John chapter 2, uh, the last couple of verses of John chapter 2 before we move into John chapter 3. Uh, get a little bit of context before we move ahead in the story. Justin, last week, preached uh, from, uh, from the second half of John chapter 2. We're going to review a couple verses and then move, move ahead into John chapter 3 this morning. We're talking about uh, what it means to be remade by love. Remade by love. That's a big concept uh, that I want us to, to, to see this morning. That we are in Christ, remade by love. Before we jump into this, let me pray for us. Father, you are good to us, so would you now provide in your goodness your spirit as we study your word? Would you accompany? We, we want to come this morning, we want to be changed uh, according to your word. We're changed into the image of Jesus. We, don't, we want to leave here different uh, than when we came. We want to leave here impacted, seeing in fresh ways the beauty, the depths of your gospel, and to be changed by it because we need that. We need to be changed. We need to be remade. So would you teach us, Lord, how to do that this morning. Even, even as we sit in our seats, would you change us in our seats? And so we commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, good to be with you guys. Even as our men are, uh, are camping out, they're retreating from us this morning, uh, and our youth are up uh, on their retreat of their own uh, in, in Eagle River, uh, but we are the, the, holy, the holy remnant who are, who are here uh, today on, on Sunday morning. So, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, all right, so John chapter, John chapter 2, find it in your, in your Bibles uh, uh, right now or on your phones. Uh, when I was in high school, or when I was in junior high, uh, when I was in junior high, I was not a very good friend. I, uh, I had one uh, particular relationship, um, that's going to bother me, uh, I had one particular friend uh, when I was in, in middle school who uh, I would spend a lot of time with. Uh, we, uh, we would play sports together all the time, we'd talk about sports together all the time, we were in the same youth group, uh, we rode the bus home together most days, we'd, uh, during basketball season we'd go to school early, uh, and, and talk. we spent a lot of time together, a lot of time doing things together and talking. Um, and uh, the problem was, though, with this one friend was that he was not one of the cool kids. He was not on the in crowd of Nunilchik Junior High, which is where I went to, went to middle school. He was not on the in crowd. And I desperately wanted to be on the in crowd. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be one of the popular kids. And so what would happen is this weird inconsistency that is pathetic and painful uh, to, to think about. But this is what would happen is uh, when uh, no one else was around and was just he and I, we would chum it up. We were good friends. I was down to hang out, down to play, like whatever he wanted to do. We, I was his best friend. Uh, and then when we were around the cool kids, what would happen? I would metaphorically lift my arm and hold him at a distance. I'd use sarcasm to kind of playfully tear him down and make him look like an idiot in front of the cool kids. I I'd, uh, I'd, just wouldn't pay attention to him very much. I'd act like he wasn't around. Uh, um, I wanted all the benefits of having a friend when no one else is around without the consequences of being associated with an uncool kid. But the point is, I think we're all hardwired uh, with, with, to a certain extent with this kind of inconsistency. When we think uh, we can get something good out of a relationship, we draw close, even as adults. Uh, but when we think a relationship might cost us, we metaphorically extend our arm 
and keep people at a distance. And we have so many clever, incredibly clever ways uh, that we do this. We cloak our disdain for someone with, uh, under the darkness of social niceties uh, or sarcasm or two-faced charm. We keep people at a distance even though all the while we're giving all the external signs that we're, the, we're their friend. And we do this with people. If we're honest, we would admit this about ourselves. We do this with people. But what we often may not realize is that we do this with Jesus as well. How easy is it for us to give off all the right external religious signs? We've never called them that. But they're external religious signs, markers that me and God were good. Right? We go to church. We pray before our meals. We maybe even read our Bibles in the morning. We uh, might even serve in a ministry or serve in the church somewhere. Or we're a leader in a, in a ministry in a church uh, somewhere. We talk about God when, uh, when God Christian friends are around, right? Uh, we work, in, we work in holy, sanctified language into our conversations. We can be doing all the right religious activities, and we fill our lives, our weeks, with good external Christian things to do. But if we're honest, and if we took an honest inventory of our inner life, of our inner thought, our emotions, our heart, there often isn't a substantive, authentic fellowship with the God that we claim to be doing all these things for. And often it's the very religious activities that we think define our status before God. And, I'm, and, and I can, uh, this is true for if you're a pastor, ministry leader, you've fallen Jesus for decades, or maybe you don't even know where you stand before Jesus. We, we think that there's the external religious things, God things in our lives that we add to our lives, that, 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 that we think that that is what defines our status before him. Um, and we use them subtly and sneakily to keep God at a distance. Because if we can, and here's the, the lie or the, the, the way the, the line rolls around in my head anyways, is if we can get ourselves to believe that God wants us to do things for him, then we can truly, or then we can avoid the truly difficult work of being with Him. If I can manage my outward aspects of my relationship with God, then maybe I can avoid the painful inward transformation that actually needs to take place. And so, like a middle school friend, we give all the external signs that me and God are good, all the while keeping Him at arm's length. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has an extended conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a man who externally is showing all the right signs. He's, he's close with God. He's, he's done, he does all the right things. But in this extended conversation, with a private conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus blows up this entire charade that he's trying to play. And the first thing that we see... Uh, Jesus tell Nicodemus is that we need metamorphosis, not maintenance. We need metamorphosis, not maintenance. Uh, and so let's start verse 23 of chapter 2. We'll read that together. And then we're going to read into chapter 3, so, but ignore the chapter divisions, okay? Uh, because what, uh, before we get into this conversation with Nicodemus, John wants us to see something about Jesus first. And it's kind of foreshadowing. It, it, it's helpful context for us as we understand, for us, as we're trying to understand what, what Jesus says to Nicodemus. So, the first thing that we see is actually not about Nicodemus, it's actually something about Jesus. We see Jesus' omniscience, starting in verse 23. Let's read that together. 
while Jesus, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Remember Justin talked about last week, he's cleansing the temple, clearing, uh, clearing the temple out. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, clearing the temple and doing all these miracles. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Then ignore the, the chapter division. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So what are we learning about Jesus that's important for us to understand about his conversation with Nicodemus? That there is nothing hidden from Jesus. He knows all. He knows the thoughts. He knows the motives. He's, he sees all these people coming to him, flocking to him, attracted to him. Uh, and, then he had, and, then it, and then it zooms into this one, John zooms into this narrow story about Nicodemus. There was a man, there was a man whom he, Jesus knew all about. Jesus is, what, the, the conversation that we're about to see unfold between Jesus and Nicodemus is Jesus acting like an expert surgeon with laser-like precision. And he's about to speak words into Nicodemus' life that are meant to cut to his core because he knows perfectly Nicodemus's heart, his motives, the rationalizations that he's going to make, the true intent behind his questions. And this is going to be important for us to, to keep in mind, that Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his, his sheep, and he knows the heart of his sheep. And it's important to remember that he knows everything about Nicodemus, but he also knows everything about us. So, that's the first thing. Jesus' omniscience, his all-knowingness. And secondly, we see Nicodemus' mixed motives. So, let's keep reading verse, verse 2. So, this, uh, a Pharisee, so he's a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night, verse 2, and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Okay, so what do we learn about Nicodemus here? Well, he's a leader of the Jews, a Pharisee. and That is, he's done all the right things externally. He's the cream of the crop. He's kept the law. He's maintained religious performance with the best of them. Externally, he and God are good. He even leads with a compliment for Jesus. So he's not like the other Pharisees. Uh, he, he's drawn to Jesus. He's attracted. He's intrigued by, by Jesus. And he leads with a compliment. We see that you're a teacher sent from God. Uh, but he's also, with this compliment, it's kind of a veiled compliment. He's kind of testing the waters of the, in the conversation with Jesus. He doesn't come out and say, you are obviously the Messiah. You're doing all these amazing things. Remember, that's what Nathaniel did all the way back in chapter 1. He spent 30 seconds with Jesus and immediately was confessing Jesus as the Messiah. But this religious leader is playing his cards a little closer to the chest. He's not, he's not, he doesn't come out and say uh, right away. Uh, uh, he's not all the way on Jesus' side. And then John also brings out this point. Did you notice... <clears throat> brings out the point that he comes to Jesus at night, at night. That is, not under the cover of, uh, and the veil of darkness. Now, we don't really know why John, or Nicodemus was coming to Jesus at night, uh, but for whatever reason, he's not willing to publicly identify with Jesus. So, he's a, really a mixed bag here. He's not all good, not all bad. He's religiously, externally, he's externally religious, and he's attracted to Jesus, but he's keeping Jesus at a distance not willing to confess totally, not willing to follow, and not willing to publicly identify with him. And Jesus' words here, he doesn't, uh, you know, Nicodemus doesn't, ever, doesn't ask a question. He hasn't asked a question yet. He just comes with his compliment, and then Jesus just starts in on him. He uh, starts in on him in verse 3. So look at verse 3. Keep reading. Jesus replied, uh, and his commands are summarized, you must be born again. Okay, and this is what he says. Truly, I, or you must be reborn. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
How can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's how Jesus replies to this very nice compliment. He's extreme, he cuts to the core. And what he says is, um, unless you are born again. Now we hear that. And it sounds very familiar. That's part of our kind of Christianese, Christian culture language. You hear even on the news, you know, born-again, Bible-believing Christians. That's kind of in our Christian culture. But remember that in Jesus' day, in Nicodemus' day, that's not how they would have normally talked about a relationship with God. That would have been foreign. And so Nicodemus, like that, Nicodemus doesn't get it. He's like, tries to go back to his ninth grade health class, and he's like, wait, how does this work again? And like, that's not, that's not how biology works. Um, and then, but it's important to remember that the Greek phrase there, you must be born again, um, it's, it, can, it can mean a couple different things. It could either mean you must be born again, or the, the same word, it can mean you must be born from above, that is, born of God. Uh, and it kind of depends on the context of what, what exactly is being meant there. It's the same exact, same exact Greek word. And now, obviously, Nicodemus understands it to mean uh, you must be born again. That's how Jesus, because Nicodemus says, how can I be born a second time? How can I be born again? But then look at how Jesus rephrases it in verse 5. Jesus says, uh, he, he says, unless someone is born of water and of spirit. Now, we might ask and say, okay, that doesn't really clarify uh, things for us. But in the, the Hebrew worldview, for the, that is the worldview of Jesus and of Nicodemus, water and spirit were, would have been very common uh, things. There were important concepts that Nicodemus would have immediately understood. So first, we have, uh, we have water, which would have been cleansing. That is, water was the source of purification. Washing with water was the only way to be cleansed from sin. Jews washed with water multiple times a day. They would, and they had whole festivals built around the idea of washing, cleansing with water. But then spirit, to be, uh, to be born of spirit, would mean uh, is a symbol for new life or transformation. Uh, the, 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 like the, 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 the life, that, the source of new life that gives life to plants or the, the life that God breathed into Adam, the, the wind, the breath, the spirit that God breathed into Adam when he was made. Okay, so what is Jesus saying with this? With, you must be born of water and of spirit. Jesus is looking at this wealthy, influential, religiously devout leader of God's chosen people. And he says, you come to me very put together, checking all the right religious boxes, but no matter how religious you may think you are, if you want a taste of the kingdom of God that I'm bringing, you must be totally remade. You must be cleansed and transformed. You are not a car that just needs an oil change and a brake job every once in a while. You need total metamorphosis, not maintenance. And then look at how he follows it up in, in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it pleases. And there, he's kind of another play on words. So wind and spirit in Greek, they're the same word, pneuma. Uh, so the wind or the spirit blows where it, where it pleases. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So what he's saying is people who are born again, people who have an authentic, genuine relationship with God are like the wind. You can see its effects. You see the effects of what it means to be born again, but you can't know it. It's completely out of your control. You can't manipulate it or manage it by doing all the right external religious behaviors. So have you, uh, uh, have you um, heard, like, this is what we see, the, the power of wind and the unpredictability of wind in, in wildfires all the time, right? The wind... the 
fire, forest fires are, are anticipating the wind to blow this way, and then all of a sudden push the fire this way, and then all of a sudden the wind changes, and what happens? Like, oftentimes there's unanticipated, surprising loss of property and life. And, and, uh, and, and life. The wind is unpredictable. You can't control it. Uh, uh, you can't control it. And in the same way, our relationship with God, Jesus says, isn't something that we can maintain or manage. And that's a pattern that Nicodemus and I think a lot of us have, are, are used to. And we're used to a relationship with God that can be managed, that we can kind of put in the box, that we can feel good about ourselves when we, ch- when we do the right things, when we go through the right rhythms, we talk the, the right way, and externally we, make, we, be- we build ourselves a framework and a structure for our lives that insulates us and helps us feel comfortable and in control of our, of our status before God. But what, what Jesus is saying is like the most religious one among you uh, can have no confidence in with the external things that they do uh, to, uh, to, to, to gain the status with God. So what about you? Where have been, you been using external Christian behavior to distract you from your need for total cleansing and transformation? Now, obviously, I'm not saying external things like bearing fruit and and, and, and seeing the effects of the Spirit is a bad thing. But I am saying, like, the external things that we strap onto our lives distract us from our total need for cleansing and transformation. Where might Jesus even be speaking directly to your heart right now? There's an area of your life that you know needs to be cleansed, a sin pattern that needs to be completely transformed. But instead, you've tried to manage it, and you're limping along trying to ignore it. What's holding you back from being completely remade? All right, so Jesus' first cut with the surgeon's scalpel shows us our true need for change. But in this, he's going to make a second cut, and this second cut shows us that the only way that this change is possible, and it's equally shocking. So look, skip ahead up to, to verse 14. Verse 14, we'll read 14 through 18. Uh, now, and what Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus is, we must look to the God of love as our only escape. Look to the God of love as our only escape. So, starting in verse 14, <clears throat> Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, we're going to come back to that Old Testament refuge reference in a little bit, but it's important, like, Jesus has just got done questioning Nicodemus, saying, you're the teacher of the Pharisees, you're the teacher of the Jews, and you don't know this, and now the, the true teacher is going to school the, 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 the imposter teacher um, on, on, this, on understanding the Old Testament. So, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way, or God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. All right, so we've just read probably likely the most famous verse in all, all of Scripture, John, John 3.16. But like so many of our favorite verses, we often don't think about them in their actual context. And you notice the, the, the obscure reference to an Old Testament passage uh, in, uh, that, that Jesus mentions right before he gets into John, John 3.16. And he talks about Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. And that comes from Numbers chapter 20, 21. And it's 
five verses, five verses tucked away deep in, 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 um, deep in the Old Testament that Moses draws out for this, for this religious for this religious leader uh, uh, to chew on it. And, um, and so let's read that now, since it's, since it's only five verses long. And, um, and in, the, in, in the story of the Old Testament so far, what, we have is, what we've seen is Israel has just been rescued. They've just been freely, dramatically, drastically rescued from slavery in Egypt. Uh, and now they're wandering through the wilderness because of their lack of faith. They're wandering through the wilderness trying to find the, the promised land. And this is what Moses writes. He says, The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they, and they bit them so that, the Israelites, so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that you will take the snakes away. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. All right, so what's the whole point of this little story in the Old Testament? Jesus, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's saying, your ancestors, who had just been rescued by God drastically, dramatically from Egypt, whom they had just seen God wreck all the armies of Pharaoh, now find themselves wrecked by perpetual sin and complaining. They're complaining about God's provision. They want, they, uh, in other passages, it says they want to go back to Egypt. They'd rather be slaves in Egypt. And though they had deserved the consequences for their unmanageable rebellion, God, in his great love, provided a way of escape. And it's almost a ridiculous way of saving people. It's like a weird little object lesson. Moses lifted up a snake, and all they had to do was look at it. And the point is, there's no hoops to jump through, there's no fine to pay, there's no sacrifice to make. There's, they don't, he, he doesn't even require them to make a verbal apology. Just a glance toward God's provision. And if you think about it, for a minute, like this story would have been incredibly shocking and offensive to Nicodemus, who had just spent his entire, who, who has, not just spent, who has, who has been spending his entire life uh, proving that he's not like his ancestors, proving that he can keep the law, that he can obey, that he can, uh, that, 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 he is, that he is righteous enough, checking all the right boxes. And now Jesus says, in, in fact, despite all your religious performance, you are just like the disobedient Israelites who had been cursed by God. And Jesus' whole point is this, that our condition, Nicodemus' condition, is so severe that we, uh, that, we cannot, <clears throat> our, that we cannot look to ourselves for a remedy. Our condition is so severe that we cannot look to ourselves for a remedy. And then he says, and then the way, and then that bleeds into, into, into verse 16, and, and the way that he saves sinners then, as a result, is, would have been equally offensive to Nicodemus. He saves sinners by sending his son, by parting with his greatest love, his only begotten son, to do what we could never do and then die the death we deserved 
to die. Jesus is saying you're looking at the one who will be one day not lifted up as, as a source of hope, but lifted up as a symbol of shame, bearing, uh, bearing the weight of death and dying, uh, being murdered, though, though guilty of nothing. And he did so to die the death that we deserve to die, that Nicodemus, the, the most righteous religious man, uh, deserved to die so that we could have the new and the eternal, abundant life of his kingdom that we could never enter into by ourselves. And all you and I must do to get in on this, all Nicodemus, despite all his accomplishments and despite all he had to boast about and brag about, all he could do was simply to look. And that's kind of what it boils down to. He He says, belief is looking to the one who was lifted up. That's all that belief means, is to look with faith to the one who was lifted up. To look by faith to the rescue from death that Jesus offers. We have no other tool, no other resource, no other cards uh, to play. A few weeks ago, I was, um, uh, we replaced the hearth behind our, uh, behind our wood stove. And, uh, and um, so like, it was up on a stand. and kind of had to rip the thing out and retile it. And then we redid the, 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 the brick behind it. And I kind of got all like uh, psyched up f- for this project. I had the, the guys from my, our, our community group haul, haul away the wood stove because it's super heavy. And then, uh, and then all that was left was this little platform that it was on. So I was psyched up to, to, to rip this thing out. And I, knew it was, I thought I was just going to like destroy our living room, get everything dusty and everything. And, and I tried to learn, like, okay, I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to have all my tools ready to go with me. Uh, in the living room, so I'm not making a thousand trips uh, out to the, you know, to grab the tool that I need. So I've got all these tools lined up, this big pile of tools, power tools and everything, and then and I go to start taking this thing out, and then Monica's like, I think all you need to do is just, like, take out these four nails and then just be able to pull it away. And, then, and of course, like, that's all I had to do. I just had to use a hammer, take four nails out, and then haul it away. Um, and um, uh, and uh, it was very heavy, so it wasn't quite that easy. But I, but the, I, I thought... I thought, uh, I thought it was going to take me all morning. I was going to need all these tools and everything like that. I thought, you know, uh, I was going to be tearing stuff apart. Uh, but it was, it was very quick. It took me maybe a half hour to do. Um, and, I, and I was excited to use all my tools. In, in part, like, I was ex- excited to use them. I was excited to feel good about myself for accomplishing uh, something hard and get the credit for, you know, taking apart this hearth. But in reality, all the other tools I had brought would have just gotten in the way. All I needed was a simple hammer. And we can so often fall into this same trap, right? We'd love to believe that there's something in us, that there's some tool in our tool belt, something in us that can contribute to our salvation. But Jesus, our good shepherd who knows our hearts, wants to utterly disabuse us of any such notion. We stand condemned along with Nicodemus and along with the Israelites complaining in, in the wilderness. All And all our attempts... To, to fix our situation will never be enough. We are only remade by looking to the one, to the God who loves us. So, what tool are you trying to bring to the table that's only getting in the way? What religious activity are you busying yourself with that is only keeping God and a robust relationship with Him at a distance? And I ask this to you, maybe you've been following Jesus for decades the thing about following Jesus for decades is that you have decades of experience like learning some bad habits and bringing a, a lot of tools in your toolbox that you can that you can bring that we can bring to to following Jesus that we can begin to rely on, begin to find comfort in, begin to find security in. 
a lot of good external. We learn the language of how to get in, fit in, in in a church. We learn the language of you know bare minimum, how to how to get in and serve and be a part of uh, of, of community. And like we learn all these bad habits, all these good habits that that would turn into bad habits. Of, uh, that that uh, and, uh, and, uh, that uh, that we that we begin to rely on, and we and so my, so this is addressed to you. Like, where where do you need to lay aside the, the habits that you've learned, uh, uh, and simply look come to Jesus looking in faith? But this is also uh, maybe you're here you don't know where you stand uh, with Jesus, or you're, uh, you're you think oh, maybe maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a follower or I would say that, but I, if I look at my life, I probably probably I'm not I'm not a follower of Jesus. Maybe maybe you don't know how to, you would describe yourself in your relationship with Jesus. Jesus' words here are equally true to you. Jesus says, lay down any notion that what you, can, what you bring to, to the table can contribute to your salvation, that God the Father is impressed in any way with, uh, with your religious external behavior, and simply look. Look to the God of love, because you are loved far more lavishly and abundantly than you could ever imagine. And that's a good thing because our only hope, the only thing that we could ever put our stake in is that that there is a God who loved you enough to send his son to die in your place, to bear all the consequences for all your bad decision making. And now since he was raised again to new life, you can find a new kind of life, a totally different kind of life, not by anything external, not by anything you do, not by anything you earn, not by any merit in yourself, but because of what Jesus has done in your place. So be humbled by that gospel. That the, that the church is not a place where people have learned to, like, how to fit in, how to get into a good Christian club because of the things that they do. Be humbled by the gospel that says we are here because we are desperately, because we are wrecked by our perpetual sin. And, the, and our only hope is to look Look in faith to the God who loves us. All right. So Jesus, uh, final words in this section, and uh, closes. He closes with three verses, verses nineteen through through twenty one. And his invitation, he gives it kind of an invitation to to Nicodemus. He says, "The world is dark, so come into the light. Come into the light. Pick up. Follow along with me in verse nineteen. Follow along in verse nineteen. This is the judgment." The light has come into the world. That is me. I'm I'm the light that I've come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. Now remember, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. If there's anyone who who wouldn't fit in that category, you'd think it'd be Nicodemus. He's a, a, a... Religious, a religious lover of God, a hater of evil. But he, uh, he does what is evil, and he uh, hates the light and, and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes into the light, so that his words may be shown to be accomplished by God. Now, I've been thinking about this passage for the last couple of weeks. Like These words are really kind of the linchpin uh, we often ignore these verses, but we kind of stop at John 3.16. But these are the linchpin to the case that Jesus is trying to make for Nicodemus. He's already said, Nicodemus, you don't just need religious self-maintenance. You need to be remade by the love of God. 
because here's the verdict. The world hates the light of Christ. And if you think about what he's saying, he's saying is the, the whole reason that we need to be remade by the Spirit, the reason we can't manage a relationship with, with, of God, with God with external behavior, the reason that you and I contribute nothing to our salvation except for looking with, uh, looking with, uh, with faith to Jesus, the reason for all of that, for what he's just said, is because you and I are not by nature neutral to God. And here's where we can often go so wrong in our culture, but often in our own, in our own hearts. That we, uh, we by, by default, think that humans are neutral to God. Uh, even if, we, even if uh, we would admit that we're not as active in our faith as, as other people, we would never say we actively hate God. We just don't think about Him that, that much. We're apathetic. We're forgetful. Or at least that's what we tell ourselves. But in reality, and the reality that Jesus wants Nicodemus to know about, the reality that, want, that Jesus wants us to know about, and the reality that Jesus wants us to know about ourselves, is this, that we hate the light. That Nicodemus, who had spent his whole life proving to the world and proving to himself that he does in fact love God, his diagnosis is actually, we hate the light. The lights come into the world, and the world rejects the light. We hate the light. And it's as if Jesus is, uh, is, is telling Nicodemus that until you come to terms with this reality, that in your heart of hearts, you religious experts stand opposed to God and hate the exposing light of Christ, until that grips you, all your religious activity and all your striving at good works, they will simply keep you in the dark, frustrated, exhausted, bitter, and distant to the God who died to be near you. And this is what Paul would, would unpack in Romans. He said, we are hostile to God because the, the mind uh, the, the, the set of the flesh is, does not submit to God's law. All, all, my, uh, all my boys, so I have th- three boys, uh, their oldest is four, they've all, when they were toddlers, loved playing uh, peekaboo. Right, uh, would, I'd hide under a blanket and then lift up the blanket, and they'd like freak out, love it, get so excited. And sometimes they would get so excited about the surprise that they knew was coming that they would want to get under the blanket too. That they would, they didn't really know what to do with themselves. They just, I want to get under there too, and then we can surprise somebody that's not that's not in the room. So, so they'd get under the room, and but what what would sometimes happen is that uh, they'd get under the blanket with me, uh, and then uh, realize like, oh, this is not as fun as I thought it would be. It's dark in here, right? And uh, being under the blanket uh, is not just a fun place to be. It's actually dark and scary. And for one of my, uh, for one of my sons, it's actually like uh, suffocating and, um, and isolating darkness in, in there. Um, so what they, thought, what, what they thought would be a fun way to disguise themselves and, and to play this little trick with dad actually turned out to be more like a coffin, dark and isolating and suffocating. And this is so true of us, too, isn't it? The masks we wear, the things that we think will enable us to disguise ourselves, to cover up brokenness, to cover up sin, and put on a good face in front of other people, the masks we wear actually become our tombs, leading to our suffocation, leading to our misery and our frustration, leading to a life, uh, a a, death, disintegrated, divided life of, of putting on a show in, in, in one, in, in one, uh, on the one hand and living with the, uh, the dark reality that you'd never admit to another person on the other hand. But here's the good news. 
The light has come. And we can walk into the light. So Jesus' words here, they're condemning, right? Uh, he says, this is the verdict. This is the verdict that, that, that you hate the light, that the world hates the light. But it's also an invitation. And the invitation is come walk in the light. Anyone who lives by the truth comes into the light. And by, he's saying Nicodemus, come into the light. The light has come to do battle against the darkness that we don't want to admit exists within us. The light has come to rip off the masks that are so convenient but have become our coffins. The light has come so that we can say all our works are accomplished by God. That's how he ends it. He says, look it. You know you're walking in the light when, when, you're, when you're saying anything good in me. It's not because of this external stuff that I've propped, up, uh, propped my life up with. Uh, but it's God working in me. So a couple of questions uh, to help us examine ourselves. Where might you be using external religious activities as a mask to deceive either yourself or others? Another, another way to get at this might be, who in your, your life, or is there, are there people, is there someone in your life who knows the real you, with whom you can take the mask off with, who knows the honest doubts and the frustrations that you have about God, who knows the kinds of things you do to put on a good exterior even when your inner life is falling apart? Because these are the things, Jesus already knows those things about you. He knows the mask that you're wearing. He knows the ways, the, the external things that we do. He knows the lies that we, that we tell ourselves. And he also knows that if you and I are ever going to be fully remade by the lavish love of God, then we must be willing to take the external stuff off, take the mask off, and say, anything good in me, it's, it's of God. And this is what makes the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in our place so liberating. So let me pray that this would be true of us this morning. Father, would you... Uh, would you shine the exposing, life-giving, rejuvenating light of Christ into our hearts that so desperately need it? Maybe for the first time or in a new and a fresh way, a way that we've never experienced before, Lord, would you expose the ways that we've been propping ourselves up? Expose the ways that we've been hiding behind the comfortability of an, an, of an external life where everybody can look at us and, 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 and think we're, we're put together? Would we expose the ways uh, in which we, like Nicodemus, need to desperately hear, lay aside all the external, lay aside all the works, and simply look, respond to, in faith, to the grace that's offered in the, in the Son who loves us, who lived the life that we needed to die, but we couldn't. That we, who lived the life that we needed to live, but we couldn't. And then who died the death that we deserve to die. Teach us, Lord, what it means to walk. Give us new, fresh eyes to see where we can walk in that light of life that is the gospel. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.